I'm not sure what you think about when you come to this time of the service. Uh, are you kind of ho-hum? Are you kind of, well, I got to endure this part? Or are you anticipating something? Is there a takeaway that you can use? Uh, or will you think, well, the preacher didn't do a very good job. What's wrong with him? Or will you listen and apply it to your life regardless of how good job? And, and the, the, the idea isn't how good a job the preacher done. It's, it's the word of God and, uh, and God speaking to you and you applying it to your life. So the title of the message today is When Nothing is Happening. Okay? When Nothing is Happening. We all feel that in our lives. It's very difficult. There's no way, humanly speaking, that the way is going to open up. And it seems like God's not hearing our prayers and our trials and our struggles get worse and worse is God's plan for my life really working and, and do I need to take some action on the side to help out God a little bit but the bigger danger is when nothing is happening that we try to make something happen and I read this quote it says, God is looking for those who have an appetite for waiting. That's kind of foreign in our day. Waiting. Why, why would you want to wait? We're in an instant society. We want answers now. And we need to find the balance of waiting on the Lord and actively carrying out His will for our life. <clears throat> have you ever thought about this thought? You know, it's, it's our natural tendency, of course. We want the easy life, or we want the pleasant life. We want the life absent of conflict and trials. We don't want suffering and misery and no end in sight. But God may accomplish more through you in the bad times than in the good times. Keep that in mind. And we've already heard about a double dose of Job. And I want to start with Job this morning. I know we got in our lesson and we got in the next couple Sundays. And I want to look at four characters today and I want to start out with Job. But I want to look at uh, maybe a few aspects we didn't look at in our Sunday school lessons. And they may overlap just a touch. And I don't spend a, plan to spend a lot of time on Job. But... I just want us to think about Job, and let's identify with these characters. If you were Job, and nothing was happening. Now Job had, had experiences throughout the book that there was nothing happening. It was all bad at times. Nothing positive was happening. And I did a little research, and apparently Job lived about 200 years. He lived 200 years long. 
That was his lifespan. And it says in the last chapter of Job that he lived after this, after this experience in Job, he lived another 140 years. So I thought, well, how long was Job when he experienced this? Well, if you, if, as we know, it says he was the greatest man in the East. He was well-respected. He was a man of wealth. He was a man of integrity. He was a man that people held their hands to their mouth because he had wisdom. So I'm assuming he was somewhere between 50 and 60 years old when this transpired. That's just my assumption based on what I read. So, it says in verse 21 of chapter 1, after all these things befell him, and it was in our lesson today, that he, he says he was naked and he came out of his mother's womb naked and so on. And he fell down and he, he worshiped God. <clears throat> then we go down into chapter 2. And as we know, he was suffering from these boils. And apparently that put off a tremendous odor. And apparently he was outside the city in ashes and this stink and just suffering with no end in sight, just sitting there in horrible misery, scraping himself. And his wife comes along, and notice what she says. She says, curse God and die. That was her solution. Do you know what she was doing? She was tempting Job to sin. And the sin was cursing God would be blaspheming God. And blaspheming God, God could take Job's life. And that's, that's around with us today. Kill your enemy and commit suicide. That's essentially what was going on here. Get, get rid of what's bothering you and die. And poor Joe, I feel sorry for him to have, have that kind of support <laughs> or that kind of advice. And just imagine Job sitting there <clears throat> day after day, scraping his boils in his outside the city. And how long did it take for his friends to hear? And I'm imagining that news didn't travel back then like it does today, of course. And I don't know how many days Job sat there before his friends even found out about his condition. Then how many days did it take for his friends to travel to him? And when they got to him, they were speechless. And they sat there seven days. And what did Job think? Nothing was happening. Things were bad. They were staying bad. It was intense. Nothing was happening. His friends finally showed up, but they didn't say a word. 
What do you think Job was thinking about the third or fourth day? Nothing was happening. And you know, we think that we have it bad sometimes in our lives that nothing is happening. But I'm telling you, Job experienced that. Did you ever think about who broke the silence? Who broke the silence? It wasn't the friends. No. Job is the one that started talking. He's the one that was suffering, and he was the one that was in turmoil, and he was the one that was in sorrow, and his friends were there, but, but they were speechless for seven days. And then Job started talking and lamenting the fact that he was born and that he should have been stillborn and all that. And then uh, chapter 3, verse 26, kind of lets us in on Job. Chapter 3, verse 26. He says, I was not in safety, neither had I rest, neither was I quiet, yet troubled. The NIV says, I have no peace, no quietness, I have no rest, but only turmoil. And this went on day after day after day after day. Nothing was happening. Go over to chapter 9. Verse 33. And Job, Job is crying out here. He said, uh, Neither is there any day's man between us, betwixt us that may lay... The, his hand upon us both. Job was just crying out. He said, I wish there was somebody. I wish there was a judge. I wish there was an arbitrator. I wish there was a mediator that could lay his hands on God and lay his hands on me and we could resolve this situation. Have you ever been there? I'm sure you have. You wish that somebody that knew the truth could represent both parties and bring solution. Now let's turn to chapter 23 of Job. Chapter 23, in the first part of the chapter, he let's just read the first few verses. Then Job answered and said, Even today is my complaint bitter. My stroke is heavier than my groaning. And how many days was that since Job won? Do you got any idea? I, I suspect it was a good while. Nothing is happening. And he said, Oh, that I knew where I could find him, that I might even come to his seat. And I would order my cause before him and fill my mouth with argument. Now keep in mind that Job, it, it says he didn't sin or charge God foolishly. Can you get a glimpse of what he was enduring in his tremendous suffering? In verse 10, he says, this is so special coming from Job and his suffering. He said, but he knoweth, he's talking about God, he knoweth the way that I take, and when he hath tried me, I shall come forth as gold. 
And Job had a, a whole book full of answers, of questions, so to speak, and he didn't have answers. And he was still suffering, and he was still wishing for that day's man that could mediate between both of them. But when he really come down to it, he said, this is, a, this is what I know is happening. That God knows the way, and he knows what I'm doing. He knows what he's doing with me because he's trying me. And when he gets done trying me, I'm going to come forth as gold. And in the meantime, verse 11, my foot has held its steps and I have kept the way and I have not declined. Job was saying I'm still remaining steadfast even though I don't have the answers. I know the outcome is going to be good, but I'm hanging on to my faith in God. And in verse 12, you know, he says, I'm going to esteem the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. In my work at Christian Light, I hear stories and things that there's no end in sight, nothing positive. In my work with CAM, I hear stories just like Job. There's no, nothing happening. In, in my ministry, I can hear stories. There's nothing happening. My wife counsels people in their journeys and they have difficulties. There's no end in sight. And do you know there's two solutions? There's two solutions. And the first solution is, in some of these situations, somebody is sinning. Not always. And Job's friends picked up on that real quick. They said he's sinning, but that was not right. In Jesus' day, the Pharisees said, who sinned? Did this man, the blind man, or his parents? And Jesus said, neither but that the works of God might be manifest. And we need to hang on to that promise that that's what's happening in our lives today, that the works of God might be manifest. Okay, I said the first solution was somebody sinning, and not always, but the second solution is we need to come to the point that Job came to here in chapter 23. That he don't understand what's going on. He knows he's being tried but he's going to hold on to his faith and he's going to esteem God and his words more than his necessary food. It says in Hebrews, without faith it's impossible to please God. We don't need to know all the answers. We just need to know that we're going to be faithful and that God will get honor and glory and that he will take care of us. And do you know what Job said in chapter 42? In verse 2, he says, I, he says he, Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know thou canst do everything. Job said that. When nothing was happening in his life, and he went through this whole period of time, and he knew that God can do anything. Okay, let's move on to the second character I want to look at today. When we're thinking about when nothing is happening, let's go back to Genesis 13. This is Abraham. God called him 
out of, of course, his home country. Let's go to chapter 13, Genesis. Chapter 13 in Genesis, where we find the promise to Abraham from God for him and his seed. Genesis 13, 15, And in the land that thou seest to thee I will give it and to thy seed forever. And I will make thy seed as the dust of the earth. And if a man can number the dust of the earth, then thy seed shall be numbered. So Abraham took that that God was going to multiply his family just as it says here, it, to the point that it couldn't be numbered. And so as Abraham continues in his journey, we get down to chapter 15, and notice what it says. In these things the word of the Lord came unto Abraham in a vision, saying, Fear not, Abraham. I am thy shield and thy exceedingly great reward. Notice what Abraham says. He says, Lord God, what wilt thou giving me seeing I go childless? See, Abraham was saying nothing is happening. It's been years since you made that promise to me. And I have no children. I have no children. How, how is my generation going to proceed if I have no children? So he says, hey, I got a steward, Eliezer of Damascus. Why don't, he, he, he was trying to help God here, give him a suggestion. Why don't you use him to be the father of my generation? But God says, no. There's one go come forth out of your own bowels, and he shall be thine heir. In verse 6, it says, He believed in the Lord, and it was counted him for righteousness. Abraham believed God. But nothing was happening. Go down to verse uh, chapter 16, verse 1. Now Sarah, Abraham's wife, bare no children. Go to verse 3. And Abraham dwelt for 10 years in the land of Canaan. Imagine that. He'd been in Canaan 10 years. And God has promised him over the years, yes, you're going to have children. And he's been there 10 years. And nothing is happening. How, how did Abraham maintain his faith in God? Just like Job. He didn't have the answers, but his faith was in God, that God is going to work this out. And the same thing is in our life today. It looks impossible. We, we, we think our life is impossible. The problems that we're facing are just horrible, and they can only get worse, and we don't see any end in sight. And, and, and see, Abraham tried to help God with, the, uh, with Eliezer, his steward. Now Sarah comes on the scene and says, I got a solution. I, I'm, we're going to get this solved. She told Abraham here in first part of 16, you take my handmaid Hagar to, your, to be your wife. 
And there, there we'll get a seed going. And it's going to come right out of your bowels like God said. Well, first of all, you see what happened there in verse 4. When he went in to Hagar and she conceived, and when she saw that she conceived, her mistress was despised in her eyes. And Sarah recognized this wrong and so on. See what happens when we try to help God? It don't work. It works against us. My text verse says, Wait on the Lord, be of good courage, He will strengthen thine heart. Wait, I say on the Lord. Did you ever think about that verse? It's from Psalm 27, 14. Why does it say, be of good courage to wait on the Lord? If it was easy, it wouldn't say that. See, it says, be of good courage while you wait on the Lord. We go to uh, chapter 18 of Genesis. Chapter 18, eight, verses 18 and 19. This is God speaking about Abraham. It says, seeing that Abraham has surely become a great and mighty nation, nations of the earth shall be blessed. I know him. He will command his children, his household after him. They shall keep the way of the Lord. Verse, uh, chapter 21. So when Abraham tried to help God with his, with his uh, Eliezer, Sarah tried to help God with her handmaid, God rejected all that. In chapter 21, And the Lord visited Sarah and said, Lord, and the Lord did unto Sarah as he had spoken, for she conceived, bare Abraham a son in his old age at the set time which God has spoken to him. Did you catch that? At the set time. God's set time is not our set time usually. For some reason, God has ways of working things out for his own honor and glory and for our spiritual good. And see, Abraham and Sarah couldn't understand that. And then, maybe I should back up to chapter 17. When God was talking to Abraham about his promise. And in verse 15 of chapter 17, he says to Abraham, For Sarah thy wife, he shall... Uh, Thou shalt call her name Sarah, for but Sarah shall be her name, and I will bless her and give thee a son of her. I will bless her, and she shall be a mother of nations, and king of people shall be to her. And of course, this was after uh, Abraham took Hagar to be his wife. And they had Ishmael, and God was coming back to Abraham. And it says, Abraham fell on his face and laughed. Well, God, how can we? We're too old to have children. And he was pleading with God 
Please take Ishmael and make him the nation that you're talking about. Do you remember I said it when we try to help God, it backfires? Notice what it says in chapter 16, verse 12. This is talking about Ishmael and his lineage. And he will be a wild man, and his hand will be against every man, and every man's hand against him, and he shall dwell in the presence of all of his brethren. In other words, that, is, that started then, and it's still true today in the Middle East, that there are wild men that are descendants from Ishmael. And they're a thorn in the flesh to their brethren because they were trying to help God when nothing was happening. And it's caused sorrow for thousands of years. So my challenge is, let's wait on the Lord and be of good courage. Now, let's move on to uh, uh, Saul. He was made king of Israel. Turn to uh, 1 Samuel 10. 1 Samuel 10. It says uh, in verses 6 to 9, or we could just read verse 10, 9. It was so that when he turned his back to go from Samuel, God gave him another heart, and all those signs came to pass that day. This is a story about when uh, Samuel was calling Saul to be king over Israel. Well, then, as Saul began to reign in, in chapter 13, it says that he reigned for two years over Israel and he came into a time of distress. And as you look at these first few verses here, uh, it says the Philistines gathered themselves to fight against Israel, 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, and the people as the sand which was on the seashore in multitude. And as you look at this account, it's, it says, As for Saul, he was yet in Gilgal, and all the people followed him trembling. You get the picture here. Saul and the people of Israel were being surrounded by this huge army without number. The catch was Saul wasn't, uh, Samuel wasn't there. And he said he wasn't going to come for seven days. And in Saul's eyes, nothing was happening. Here this army is, is closing in on him. His own people, the children of Israel, and his own fighters were trembling. And nothing was happening. So what's he supposed to do? And Samuel didn't come. Do you ever face those situations? Do you see what it said in 13 verse 8? Well, it says in, in 8, he tarried seven days. And I think I read some comment that, that Samuel was testing Saul, the reason he tarried, to see if he would be true. And God can test us to see if we're true to our commitments or whether it's just yay, yay on Sunday morning and then the next week we do something else. 
Wait on the Lord when nothing is happening. See what he said in verse 12? He says he forced himself. He had no other choice. He forced himself to offer this to make supplication to the Lord. And he offered a burnt offering. That was his excuse. And Samuel said, Thou hast done foolishly. Thou hast not kept the commandment of the Lord thy God, which he commanded thee for how the Lord would have established thy kingdom forever. And of course we have the, that, those famous words, familiar words in chapter 15. Well, in, in chapter 15, it's verse 11, he says, It repenteth me that I have set up Saul to be the king over the Israel, because he has not performed my commandments. Verse 22 says, Hath the Lord a great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey... Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. We're tempted that in our times. Well, we'll just force ourselves to do something shady and then we'll repent to God and hoping everything will be all right. That's what the devil wants us to do. And Saul lost the kingdom. He was rejected of being king because when nothing was happening, he didn't wait. He pushed ahead and did wrong. Okay, the last one I want to look at quickly is Joseph. How did Joseph respond when nothing was happening? Okay, we can look. He was sold... Uh, Chapter 37, 28 says that the Midianites and the merchants came by, they drew and lifted up Joseph out of the pit and sold Joseph to the Ishmaelites for 20 pieces of silver, and they brought Joseph into Egypt. Did you ever think about what did Joseph have to say about this? There's no comment from Joseph. There is later... If you go later on, you'll find out some comments that Joseph had on that, that time. In chapter 42, 21, the brothers, remembering when they were standing before Joseph as the leader in Egypt, they remembered back when they sold Joseph, and he says, We are very guilty concerning our brother, and that we saw the anguish of his soul when he besought us, and we would not hear. Therefore, is this distress, distress came upon us. He, they're saying he pleaded with us at that time for his life, and we didn't hear him. And Joseph was sold into Egypt. And he was sold for 20 pieces of silver, and they say that was the common price in those days. And you know the story, Joseph served in Potiphar's house and then Potiphar's wife falsely accused him and there was no wrongdoing on his heart, on his part and he was put into prison. He was put into the royal prison and he was put in a prison house. I think we get an insight in Joseph's mind here in Genesis 
13. This was after he told the dreams to the butler and the baker. And he said that the, the uh, butler, the cupbearer, was going to be restored to his position. And now Joseph tells him, he was in prison with Joseph, and now he, you're going to be restored. And he says, but think on me, and it shall be well with thee, and show kindness, I pray, unto me, and make mention of me unto Pharaoh to bring me out of this house, for indeed I was stolen away out of the land of the Hebrews, and here also I've done nothing that they should put me in this dungeon. That's what Joseph said. And he'd been there for a long time, I'm assuming. And nothing was happening. How did Joseph feel? Did you see what it says in 41, verse 1? It says it came to pass at the end of two full years. Day after day, Joseph was in the prison. He couldn't get away. Yes, he was in charge of the prison. He was, God was blessing him, but nothing was happening. Two full years. Day after day, he was suffering in the prison. Where was God? Joseph knew about God. He knew about the commandments of God. He knew how wonderful God was. He, I'm sure he knew the promises of God. And why was he, and Joseph in the Potiphar situation says, I cannot do this sin and sin against God. And yet he was in the prison for years. Nothing happening. Not a thing happening that was getting him out. Could we come out where jo Joseph came out in chapter 45? He's telling his brothers, don't be sorry for what you did to me. Verse uh, 5 of 45, Therefore be not grieved, neither angry with yourselves, that you sold me hither, for God did send me before you to preserve life. Can we come out there? When we get to the end of our trials and our troubles and our horrible situations, can we say we're submitted to God for His honor and glory? He even said, don't worry about it because God meant it for good. In conclusion, depending on how we wait on God can reveal how spiritually mature we are. Are we committed? It may show how committed we are. We need to learn from Abraham not to run ahead of God. And from Saul to always obey, even though it seems that disobedience accomplished more than obedience. It does not. But the devil presents it that way. And remember, when nothing is happening, God is still working and has a plan that will come to pass right on time. Shall we sing?